Hello and welcome to Holistic Health Chats, a podcast where we chat about all things holistic women's health and everything in between. I'm your host, Selene Douglas, a women's health nutritionist with a focus on helping women to heal holistically and live pain and symptom free. I'm so happy that you've made your way here. Tune in every week so we can listen, learn and be inspired together. In this episode of the podcast, I am joined by Danielle Svensson. In case you hadn't heard the news, you can now find Danielle consulting in clinic at Selene Douglas Nutrition. And she's an absolute wealth of knowledge on all things hormones. In this episode, we are opening up a conversation around endometriosis, a condition that we work with often in clinic, but I am yet to discuss on the podcast. We unpack the difference between endometriosis and other hormonal imbalances. We cover the key symptoms, why pain isn't always a symptom with endo, the issues with correct diagnosis. We cover conventional treatment options and what we look to use in clinic to help our clients with endometriosis. What I really want you to take away from this episode, if you currently have endometriosis, is that surgery is really only part of the equation and we need to be taking a much more holistic uh, view of endometriosis if we want to get successful results. I hope you love this episode as much as I do. If you are currently wanting to get personalized advice to support you with your nutrition and hormones, the best place to start is for you to book in a complimentary consultation. In this 15-minute consultation, we will discuss your current health goals, what you can expect from consultations, and we cover any questions that you may have. If you're happy to go ahead, we book in a time for your initial consultation, but equally, if you need a little time to think about it, that is perfectly okay too. To book in a complimentary consultation, simply head over to selendouglas.com forward slash links and navigate to the book section. Alternatively, you will also find the booking link in the show notes on this episode. We hope to meet you very soon. Hi, Danielle. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Selen. So nice to be back again. Yes, it is. Very good to chat to you always. Um, Today, we are talking about endometriosis, which I've realized is not something I've actually talked about before on the show. I don't know why, um, <laughs> but it is something that we do work off, um, work with fairly frequently mm-hmm. in clinic. Yes. Um, so I thought it would be definitely an important one to cover because it's so common as well and I find becoming increasingly common. Mm-hmm. Um in this modern world that we're living in, whether it's what we're exposed to, different genetic factors, but I definitely see it much more commonly or even diagnosis. Maybe we're just getting better at finding it potentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But to start with, I guess I'd love just a bit of a definition around what endometriosis is and and what it isn't as well. Yeah, yeah, it's um it's such a good point, Selena. I think you're right. We're noticing it more and more in clinic with with our clients, and and it is you know in terms of percentages, we can suggest that it affects roughly ten to fifteen percent of women of reproductive age. And to be honest, you know, I think we can all agree that that percentage is probably increasing because so much of endo is um goes undiagnosed. So there's probably more women out there that do have endo that we don't know about. So you know, that's that's a, a substantial amount of women that are probably suffering with endo but I guess in endometriosis the way to describe it is it's characterized by the growth 
of endometrial-like tissue outside of the uterus. So this is obviously common that we get that growth within the uterus and when we menstruate we shed that uterine lining essentially so when we start to see that this tissue is then outside of uh, the uterus um, it can start to cause a lot of difficult symptoms um, that we can go into but also sometimes women can be quite asymptomatic as well um, so we can we can definitely look at that yeah it's that's I guess where it gets trickier when we're finding people that are asymptomatic which is something we were talking off air about a little bit Mm -hmm. because um yeah we've had a few clients recently that we would say would definitely be your atypical endometriosis um Mm -hmm. sort of clients and then there's some complications which we'll get to in terms of diagnosing that as well because it's not so straightforward as you know getting a blood test done yes Um, exactly And I think another key component of endometriosis is that it is more and more now being recognized as dysfunction of the immune system. So Mm. there is, um, you know, likely that genetic predisposition, um, but it is more of an immune issue as opposed to a hormone issue. So it presents with hormonal symptoms um, and there is definite ties, you know, and estrogen can um can make endometriosis worse and sort of act like fuel on the fire but it's it's not so much a hormonal condition and and does need to be i guess treated differently to mm-hmm. how we would some of our other hormonal issues um and in terms of symptoms like you said pain is a really, really common one, but not yeah. always. Yeah. And yeah. Mm-hmm. this is something I've seen a couple of times in the last year where I've had clients that you definitely wouldn't um, characterize in that endometriosis um, sort of box or you would even suspect it. Um, and they did have a laparoscopy and significant endometriosis was actually found. So I think we need to kind of broaden our radar a little bit when we're working Mm -hmm. with clients and not necessarily ruling it out if pain isn't a significant thing but typically and sort of conventionally pain is that really like key cardinal um, sign and symptom of endometriosis and I would say the thing that goes hand in hand with that would be IBS like symptoms Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and absolutely you know sort of un um untreatable air quotes gut issues gut symptoms almost like food intolerances and things like that as well Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is it's so important that you touch on that Selene and we were having a chat about this in terms of the connection um, with those gut related symptoms Um, more often than not we will see um, you know women that potentially have endo or have confirmed endo that they do have a lot of IBS like symptoms so whether that's that alternation between diarrhea constipation um, you know pain when they're going to the bathroom so when they're passing stools there can be pain there Um, so that abdominal pain as well yes it can be from more related to that pelvic region but it could be as well from when we consider you know our large intestine and things like that so these are all factors that we have to look at and this is where symptom uh management and looking at the like i guess the cyclical nature of someone's symptoms is really important because this is where we can start start to ask those questions of you know are you getting those sort of abdominal symptoms throughout your whole menstrual cycle or are they only you know a week before menstruation or even around ovulation we often hear that from women too that they could get an increase of symptoms at ovulation Mm -hmm. as well 
Yep. I find the other really common symptom is pain with intercourse as well. Yeah. I guess be the other one to mention. That's a big um, one. That is, yeah, sort of another red flag there that we're actually mm-hmm. looking at. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of diagnosis, like let's talk about, I guess, some of the issues with diagnosing endo and, and um, I don't know if you, I don't have a stat here, but I know the average diagnosis time is like quite considerably long. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I don't have a stat either. So I should but it's, it's one thing that we were talking about in terms of the stages. So just for everyone listening, you know, there's essentially four stages of endometriosis starting with essentially minimal um, and then moving to mild, moderate, and then severe. So stage four is severe. And by the time women are actually having, uh, you know, getting this diagnosis, um, they're typically at stage three or four. So they're at, you know, a moderate to severe level of endometriosis in terms of um, the lesions that are found um, and the implants, so what we call more of those deep implantations rather than superficial, which is more of that sort of like top layer essentially. So this is something to the gold standard that's, you know, still only exists for women is to have the um, laparoscopy. So that's a process, I think, Selene, for women to go through um, to even get to that stage of having that surgery. Um, and this is why some women may even be hesitant to probably uh, investigate, you know, if it is the potential of endometriosis, they're, they're hesitant to go down that path because we're unsure of what that might look like. And we know that there's still only essentially that end point of having the surgery to see what what is there basically. Yeah. 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 And there's other complications, I think, like if you're in, um, which a lot of people would be in Mm. you know in a a waiting system sort of in the public system you know you could be waiting in some places 12 months or more to Mm. actually have that um and then I still hear from people oh I had an ultrasound and they told me that I didn't have it Mm. and that's just not diagnostic like we can't actually rule it out Um, it would be great if we could, because obviously that would be a less invasive way to be able to tell if someone had endometriosis or not. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's just not possible. So if you're listening and, you know, you think you have it, um, or thought you did have it, um, based on your symptoms, but you were told you didn't, but you haven't had a laparoscopy, then it actually hasn't properly been ruled out. Um, and yeah, definitely had many cases where, there definitely was endometriosis. Um, but yeah, unfortunately women, um, because of the difficulties around getting that surgery and maybe hesitancy from them themselves, difficulties in wait times, difficulties in even maybe getting that referral from their doctor Mm -hmm. potentially. Um, then we're seeing that women are not being diagnosed for a really long time. And I see, I would say it's, it's more common for women to receive a diagnosis if they're experiencing fertility challenges. Yes. Yeah. That's a really, really good point, Celine. And I think because when we look at the result of endometriosis, that infertility is often, you know, one of the ones that is top of the line, essentially. So we're looking for that. And so if a woman more so presents with that difficulty in terms of conceiving, going down that path of of investigating for endometriosis because essentially now we're trying to rule out the reasons for infertility, right? Mm. So, you know, then it's going, okay, well, is it endo? Um, Which once again is is not great that that's still the process, you know, Mm. because 
obviously from a, uh, you know, a functional perspective, we're looking at all of the reasons that, you know, we're supporting someone's fertility and, and optimizing that. Um, but that can be quite confronting as well. If a woman is faced with not only the potential for infertility, but then also on top of that, the potential that we could have, you know, someone with endometriosis at a severe level, you know? Yeah. So, um, but I would agree with you. That's probably one area where we're more likely to, to have that investigation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of conventional treatment options, like <laughs> there's not much, um, that is offered. I tend to find your top ones, um, will be the Mirena, so progestin, yeah. synthetic progestin. We talked about that a little bit, I think, in a previous episode mm-hmm. um, around perimenopause, so synthetic progestin, um, and then the oral contraceptive pill as well being very, very common, so combined mm-hmm. oral contraceptive, which is estrogen and progesterone. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I've seen many examples of either of those treatment options working um, particularly well, but admittedly we are obviously very biased because people, if their marine oral oral contraceptive is working really well for their endo, probably aren't going to come and see us, which we understand. So that obviously shapes our sort of view around what we're seeing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then of course the excision surgery um, is the main thing. And I think Mm -hmm. the thing that we really wanted to, cover in this episode is that if you're just doing an excision surgery and nothing else, you're probably not going to get very good results. Exactly. To put it brutally. Mm -hmm. And we see really commonly that people have one, two, we have an example this week of, um, Mm -hmm. or not three excision surgeries, but three surgeries. um, And that person is still experiencing all of the same symptoms as before. And mm-hmm. so I'm not saying that surgeries are not part of the solution because it, yes. you know, especially if fertility is part of your health goals, then that surgery is probably a really good um, part of yes. um, the pathway towards achieving that goal for you. But it's definitely not the only thing we need to be looking um at the system as a whole, what's creating Mm -hmm. that environment for that Mm -hmm. immune dysfunction. Because if we come back to endo being a dysfunction of the immune system, well, we need to look at what factors in your diet, lifestyle, other, you know, um, concurrent health issues might be actually driving that. So therefore making that endometrial growth um, worse or that endometriosis growth worse um, and removing some of those factors. Yeah, for sure, Selene. And I think it's such an important point you make because as it stands, endometriosis is such a complex multifactorial condition. Mm. So when we look at that, we can't then approach such a complex condition with just a one size whip it out. <laughs> yeah. Let's just let's just have the surgery and we'll be we'll be okay. And we we know that more times than not, that's not the case. You know, I don't know that many women that have had just the one surgery and have completely, you know, uh, reversed or improved their symptoms. Um, you know, so maybe there are women and I think amazing if that's worked for you, like you said, they're probably not coming to see us, but I think what's on the other side of that too, is in terms of the management then of women's symptoms from a conventional medicine perspective is very, very limited. So if we think about 
pain as a very common symptom, you know, we're then adding in probably a lot of your pharmaceutical anti-inflammatories, um, which we know as practitioners is then having a flow on effect to affecting the gut microbiome and so on and the liver. So, you know, it's kind of like if women are on that sort of management process and going, well, I'm still not getting, you know, um, pain relief in any way and yet we're adding more burden from mm. whether it's oral contraceptive pill you know uh things like neurofin whatever that might be we're just creating more of an issue on top of that yeah. so depleting yeah. your glutathione which is that exactly. main antioxidant for your immune system and look you know we're not we, we totally understand if you're in that level absolutely. of pain that you're needing to do something to address that absolutely but mm-hmm it shouldn't just be that essentially is what we're saying. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess from a foundational point of view, everyone's going to be, well, what we kind of see as the foundations being those nutrition foundations and then also lifestyle factors. So things that we've definitely mentioned before, like sleep training, what chemicals you're putting on and into your body, um, you know, from just a really foundational point of view, what, food you're putting in, how many food Mm -hmm. products versus real foods you're eating, what additives you're eating, all that sort of thing. I'd say that's our, like our sort of base foundation that we want to look at first. Mm -hmm. Um, whether there's any like food intolerances, like, you know, a dairy intolerance or a gluten intolerance or something like that, that's actually contributing to that immune dysregulation. Um, that's where we want to start. And I think for all of our clients, everyone's on quite a different spectrum of where they're at. That's a real sliding scale from like, you know, good, better, best, if you want to think about it like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say most of our clients come to see us usually if they have endo and it's been diagnosed, they've already been trying a few things in most instances. So they're probably more on that, like, um, better to best sort of spectrum or somewhere Mm -hmm. around that. Mm -hmm. Um, but if they're not, um, that's, I think really where we like to start in clinic. Um, Mm -hmm. and I guess if there's anything there, Danielle, that you want to speak to what we would be looking at there. Yeah, no, I I love that, Selene. I think the foundations are are huge. And I think this is where as well, when we look at endo as being, um, you know, more of an immune-mediated condition where we're seeing that come through more and more in the research, which is really promising because it's giving us somewhere to look. Um, I also think that's where we have to consider, you know, the connection between the gut and the immune system. And it's once again not to say that every woman that has endometriosis has gut issues but there's a very likely chance that we can do things to improve so we can do things to improve the gut microbiota we can do things to reduce dysbiosis we can do things to prevent you know things like leaky gut or the onset of that there so and that really comes back to those foundations from our diet um and you know we can be looking at even from a fiber perspective you know whether that's you know we need to improve someone's fiber or we need to improve someone's prebiotic probiotic uh type balance or we need to use certain nutrients that will support the gut membrane and then the immune system. So we can get quite specific there, but 
you know, I would say from that inflammatory perspective, Celan, so looking at in inflammation, oxida oxidative stress as drivers and mm. contribu contributors to something like endometriosis. And also I would say then perpetuating the symptoms. This is where we look at, um, you know, what I would say like aggravating factors. Mm. So if we have someone who's still on a, you know, highly processed diet, having a lot of um, potentially omega-6 to um, instead of omega-3s, which we know are really amazing for reducing that inflammation, um, you know, they're, they're dehydrated. They're not getting enough of fiber in alcohol. They're drinking alcohol, which yeah. is a big one. All of those factors. Um, we know that if we can work on those, we're really working on at least, you know, 70 to 80% of the foundations that need to be improved to hopefully start to improve those outcomes for someone with endometriosis. So that's where I would be looking. Another one, Solana, is definitely from an environmental perspective, purely because of just what we face now in terms of environmental toxins, chemicals, those xenoestrogens. So once again, we're coming back to that estrogen um, uh, uh, excess, I guess, for, for women with endometriosis. Um, if we can reduce their burden from an external perspective, mm -hmm. then we're, we're at least helping, you know, that process. We're helping them to detoxify things better. We're helping the liver to process things better so that estrogen isn't so much of an issue as well. So, yeah. um, you know, because we do know that estrogen contributes to essentially the growth of that endometrial lining anyway. So yeah. it's a proliferative hormone. So definitely it does yeah. that even in clients without endometriosis, right? Where yeah. we see that, um, you know, if we, if we aren't ovulating as an example, we can end up with endometrial hyperplasia, which is basically that thickening of the uterine lining. And mm -hmm. we see really heavy periods and things like that, um, as a result. So we know that it does, it has this action, yes, you know, regardless, right. So mm -hmm. it's going to do the same thing with endo. It's basically like throwing fuel on the fire. Yeah. Um, and it won't necessarily be an issue for everyone. Um, but mm -hmm. that's where testing is really important. So, um, common tests, um, of with all of our clients, we are always going to do comprehensive blood testing and there is no, um, no, what, what am I trying to say? No, no, <laughs> no exception. No exception. That's <laughs> yeah, <one. yep. laughs> um, so we're always going to do that between appointments one and two. And that's where we can start to piece together, depending on how much information we have back um, in endo as well, depending on the symptom picture, I typically would tend to push for a full, full thyroid panel as well. Um, just because we know with one kind of autoimmune like condition, it's also very common to see another. And again, we do see a lot of crossover with some of those symptoms. So things like heavy bleeding, very, very commonly both. Mm -hmm. um, so and that's where it's helpful to yeah get as much information as we can through that blood testing. Um, and then in terms of hormone testing, depending on, you know, everyone has a different budget for testing. If we think that you'd be better suited to more in-depth gut testing, we might be suggesting that. Um, but other things we can do to look at that sort of estrogen to progesterone ratio would be getting that kind of mid-luteal phase um, test and, and actually calculating those ratios for you. Um, there are, I guess, you know, some difficulties with that. That's going to give us some information, but of course, with something like the Dutch, we get the metabolite. So I don't often see an issue with too much estrogen production in the body. Mm -hmm. I typically more so see an issue with estrogen like breakdown and, um, 
clearance from the body. So yeah, um, I'd say that's more common and we don't necessarily get that level of detail from bloods. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's where some of those challenges can be. Um, But we, you know, help to, I guess, navigate that for you and put together the most, um, you know, comprehensive, but equally kind of like choosing the tests that are going to be best for particular clients. Um, and yeah, there's definitely, as with no, any health condition, there's really no one size fits all approach when it comes to endo. I'd say first, we want to be looking at those dietary factors. We want to be correcting any nutritional deficiencies. And we talked a little off air about, you know, some of the key deficiencies we might see that are really important for liver function, things like your B12, your folate, um, they're going to, and even your homocysteine levels, they're going to tell us a lot about how well that methylation process is working in your body, which is essentially for anyone that doesn't know your phase two liver pathway. Um, and so if you've got deficiencies in that, we can kind of tell a little bit just off that information or probably a lot really about how well your body is actually able to detoxify and clear estrogen. So we can, you know, play a little bit of detective work. That's where I guess the more testing, the more test results we get back, um, the more helpful it is for us to kind of piece together that story. Um, And then with gut testing, it depends. I think, you know, it's great if we can have this information, um, not everyone with endo, as I said, will necessarily have a heap of work to do here. Um, but looking at that symptoms and symptom picture and sort of going like, do you experience symptoms across the whole month versus, um, you know, just before you're getting your period, because it's very common for women. And, you know, again, the severity is really important here, but some degree of looser stools is relatively normal before yes. your period mm-hmm. arrives. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you're experiencing it for, you know, two weeks out of four, um, we want to look at, investigate that further. But um, yeah, getting that information is really, really important for us because it tells us, is it, is it actually something that we're going to be able to pick up in a gut test or is this actually something um, more hormonal that we're looking at? Yeah, exactly right, Selena. And I think that's, you know, the best case scenario is that we can get a scope of different test results. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, Wouldn't Maybe that be they'll nice? all be under yeah. Medicare one day. <laughs> that would be a dream, right? Um, <laughs> but until then, it, it is, it's working on an individual basis. And like you said, it is, you know, we definitely will have um, clients that have more of a hormonally driven endometriosis mm. presentation. We will have clients that has more of a gut driven presentation or both. <laughs> or both. Um, and then, you know, realistically the story that then our bloods tell us probably mm. the actually caters to both if we're really honest. So, um, yeah. you know, but those, those nutrient deficiencies are so key. You know, another one is anemia, obviously with, mm. with the, the heavy bleeding, the menorrhagia, those sorts of things with endometriosis, a- anemia could be a real, uh, clinical picture that we see there as well. So, um, and that's where we like to get, you know, even from not just what's current, but we were talking about someone like that health history, mm. really looking at, okay, how, you know, for example, someone's symptoms across five, 10 years, has it always been then correlating for the potential of endo? It's just never been 
looked at, you know, so it's never been picked up. And we, so the onset of symptoms is so important for us as practitioners. Mm -hmm. We, we really want to understand how long we've been suffering with this. Um, and, and then the potential of, okay, is it really necessary that we go down that pathway of investigating Mm -hmm. endo? I think that just gives us enough confidence Mm -hmm. maybe to do that in those, um, scenarios. Yeah, definitely. And I love when clients fill in those really detailed health histories that are like everything that's happened to me from birth. For anyone listening, if you're a new client or potential new client, more detail is amazing because it's really, really helpful for us. And yeah, it's sometimes hard. It's like pulling teeth sometimes, but it's really, really important. I think people don't understand why we're often asking those questions, but Mm -hmm. um, it's really, really important for us to be able to piece together that timeline because it actually informs what we might suggest or not suggest in certain situations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go through, I guess, some of the other key strategies. So we've kind of touched on the foundations and we'll do more in-depth episodes where we kind of go into that. But um, from a supplemental point of view, um, what are some of your key go-tos for endo? Yeah, it's um, it's a great question, Selen. I think, you know, if we look from the inflammation point of view, um, like I was saying before, omega-3s are really important for me. So um, balancing that omega-3 to omega-6 ratio, um, so really looking at a good quality fish oil or, you know, a um, vegan alternative if that's possible. Um, it goes without saying curcumin, the amount of studies that are done <laughs> on that for infl- inflammation um, and really even relative to endometriosis for that pain. Um, is really, really notable. So I think, you know, that's another one. Um, N-acetylcysteine is one that probably even women listening to this podcast right now are probably either taking or <laughs> everyone's heard of it. No, <laughs> everyone's, yeah, it's, it's been one of those uh, wonder nutrients, I guess we could put it that way, because it does have so many amazing functions. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not to say this will be the supplement that works for everyone, but, um, you know, from an inflammatory point of view, pain, um, it's a precursor to glutathione, which is like our master antioxidant in the body, supporting that liver function phase two detox. It mm. will do. And if you've been taking a lot of painkillers as well, oh, that's where it would be really helpful too. Definitely, definitely. So NAC and acetylcysteine is a big one. It goes without, goes without saying. Um, our B vitamins really important, like you said, Selen, B12, folate, and the others. You know, B6, mm. all of those sorts of things. Um, you know, I would start to look at if we're going from more of a gut angle as well, things like the potential for your zinc, your vitamin A's, your glutamine, maybe probiotics. Um, they're all things that, you know, if you do have a lot of sort of gut, underlying gut issues, we could go down that pathway there. Mm-hmm. Um, one that I like to use from an estrogen dominance, estrogen excess perspective is broccoli sprouts. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that's one I've used more and more in recent times, um, purely because it, it really does work on you know, when we look at those phase two enzymes for for that liver detoxification pathway, um, they're amazing for supporting that, modulating mm. that um, and improving the clearance of, of those hormones and toxins and chemicals and things like that. So um, further than that, Selene, I would probably look to things that were where we consider um, from more of like a pelvic congestion or circulation. So if we consider a little bit more from TCM philosophy, mm-hmm. circulation is so important for women with endometriosis. Um, so improving circulation within the body, within that endometrial 
um, and, and within the pelvic cavity, those sorts of things are really important. So I like to lean on, once again, your curcumin comes in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but as nutritionists, we love things like our cinnamon and our gingers. They have such beautiful properties for circulation, um, analgesic. So once again, modulating pain. So they, there are some others that we might bring mm-hmm. in depending on the person and their needs. Yeah. And that's where we can use like more of those functional foods as well, which is nice because it's nice to be able to bring in some of those without, you know, only relying on supplemental strategies as well. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think this summarizes that it's not a one size fits all approach. Like just because you have endo doesn't mean you go and Dr. Google all of the endo supplements, because I often find zinc will be a really common one. Sometimes people are taking like a CoQ10. Um, NAC is probably quite common as well. Um, But often people come with like this plethora of different things that they're taking and they're not really too sure if it's working, if they're taking the right thing for them. And that's where we can see like, you know, if a big part of what is driving or contributing to your endometriosis is more of a gut issue. Um, or that's a huge piece of the puzzle, then, you know, you need to be much more specific and strategized about how you're actually addressing that rather than kind of just the, you know, throw all the spaghetti at the wall and hope something sticks type approach, Mm -hmm. um, which is a lot of what we see. Um, And then I guess the other really common thing we see is what we touched on, just the fact that the excision surgeries are done with very little other um, very little else I should say done alongside it. Um, and they definitely have their place, but I just want to stress, like you just, it's not a sustainable approach to be kind of even in your early or mid twenties and having, you know, the rest of your reproductive years is just going to be surgery after surgery after surgery, right? Like that's not, that's not sustainable. No, it's not sustainable. It's just not really Mm -hmm. an option to be doing that. Right. So, um, they are, I think often part of the solution, but that's where we need to be kind of like creating our care team and looking at what else we're doing yeah. Um, yeah. to support our body and reduce that inflammation. And then also that can really, if we are maybe needing to get subsequent surgeries, it's going to actually space out the time that you're yeah. going to require mm-hmm. that, right? So that's what we want. That's still, <laughs> really and that's still a positive, right? Yeah. That's, that's it. It's not to say that we're then throwing out the potential for surgery altogether. It's yeah. how can we best support, you know, we look at this for our clients. How can we best support you going into that surgery, coming out of that surgery? And like you said, Celine, the space between surgeries, if we can actually start to push that mm-hmm. out, we see that as a, a real positive, you know? Yeah, um, uh, it's, and, yeah. And I don't think we're necessarily... Um, you know, in some instances, some women have really amazingly managed endo that they then end up in a place where they do have very minimal to even no pain and they don't have a lot of those ongoing symptoms, which is incredible. Um, I don't necessarily think everyone achieves that. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we are going for and aiming for is just better management. So if someone was coming to us and they're like, I'm in excruciating pain three weeks out of four every month, if we can reduce that pain for them, get that duration down to like even two or three weeks, reduce the severity, reduce the amount of and the strength of the painkillers mm-hmm. because, I mean, women are taking like endones and all sorts of really, exactly. really strong painkillers. Mm-hmm. If we can get that down to like 
a neurofern or something really reducing yes. the duration severity i'm like we're winning seriously <laughs> we, we are winning exactly, like exactly right from a quality of life perspective mm. Celine, i think that's you know and i want to stress that for so many people it's you know we're not sitting here going from a holistic or natural medicine perspective that we can cure endo or anything like that it's mm. but we want to help people manage the endo in a better way like any health condition mm. you know if we can work on that management and reduce how much people are maybe you suffering. know experiencing and mm. suffering then that's a huge win for us you know yeah. so um and i think that's you know it, it's we can even discuss this another time but you know something like endo being such a complex condition we see that sort of um parallel with then women you know from a mental health perspective mm. it's it's just it's, it's huge. so huge you know from a depression anxiety because they are experiencing so many uh health issues and symptoms and and they're suffering day to day of course that's going to weigh on their mental health over time so you know we're then dealing with that aspect so we've got to improve you know the quality of life there and and just how women are feeling from you know one day to the next mentally physically emotionally all of those things yeah and i mean i've never had anyone not improve in some way yeah. from doing these strategies right so Exactly. Literally have nothing to lose um, mm-hmm. and everything to gain. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yes. Is We'll do another follow-up episode to this, but is there anything else you wanted to add today, Danielle? No, I think, I think so. And we've really, we've really touched on it. I think, you know, the main things we wanted to get across was really talking about what endo is not in, in essence, it's not just a hormonal condition um, and, and looking at, you know, I guess some of the challenges that women face, just Mm. we're speaking to that today in terms of getting a diagnosis and and having a management plan in place. Um, But I think the positive is, you know, the more reading I've done around this is that, you know, even in a really recent survey, most women now, I think it was upwards of 70% are now looking at alternative treatments to support what they're doing conventionally. And that's for me, that's the, that's the sweet spot. If we can have more women coming to, you know, nutrition and, and these types of therapies to support what they're doing in terms of surgery and, and with their doctor, then I think that's, that's, such a positive for the future. So yeah, yeah, I mean the research is definitely there to support what we're doing and recommending and yeah. as is the anecdotal results, right? I mean completely. Mm-hmm. We see it all the time. Yeah. Um but yeah, I <laughs> yeah. think main issues are actually getting properly diagnosed, not relying on um, you know, the air quote treatment options whether it is the pill, the marina, not to say if you're doing those things that you've done the wrong thing at all, but just really understanding that you don't have to pick a side, like it doesn't have to be conventional or air quotes natural. You can actually combine the two um, and get really um, amazing, better results in doing that. Yeah. Um, And yeah, if you're listening to this and you have endometriosis, we can absolutely help you and we would love to as well. Um, So if anyone has any, I guess, follow-up questions from this episode, feel free to even send them through on Instagram or via email and we'll definitely do a follow-up episode. Yeah, that would be great. All right. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Lynn. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Holistic Health Chats. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you could leave me a rating and review in iTunes, as this allows me to help more women just like you. Holistic Health Chats is not intended to replace medical advice, so please consult with your practitioner before making any changes to your current health. If you are ready to take your health to the next level and would like some personalized support, 
the next step is booking in for a complimentary health chat. Please head to selendouglas.com forward slash book for more information.